The Money Show with Moteo Haripe on 702. Let's walk the talk. Absa CIB, the market leader in renewable energy deals across Africa, is proud to bring you The Money Show. Absa is a registered FSP. Well, welcome to The Money Show. Good evening. My name is Mateo Horipe, in for Bruce this evening, who's, of course, at the COP28 Climate Change Conference in Dubai. And Bruce will be giving us the latest from the sessions and sidelines at the event. Then the JSC was in better territory today, only just after some earlier losses this week. We'll break down the market movements and stories that came out of today. Uh, Chris Stewart, Portfolio Manager at 91, are covering the markets with us. The fund management industry has been dragging its feet when it comes to transformation in the sector, but it seems there are some pointed actions that are forcing the industry to get a move on now. Isabella Mnisi, RMB's market client executive, will update us on the latest happenings in the industry. Then Impala Platinum Simunya Hostel Stadium was packed to the rafters as Impala, its miners, the families and the community honoured the 13 miners who lost their lives in that Shaft 13 incident on the 27th of November. Just before 7, we'll be talking to Johan Theron, Group Executive of Corporate Affairs, about what the future holds for those families of the deceased miners and the agenda ahead of the company's annual general meeting. Then later on the show, we talk about year and productivity paranoia. Some of you are working remotely. Uh, you know, are your colleagues trusting that you still do the job well into the festive season? Uh, business uh, usual, a uh, business unusual uh, feature covering that today. Simpua Moyo, organizational behavior specialist, will help us understand productivity paranoia. Then Consumer Ninja, uh, Wendy Nola, helping to tackle all the consumer. Uh, challenges that we do face. Credit Life Insurance is on the cards today and she'll be helping us understand our rights when it comes to that. Then our shapeshifter later in the show at around 7.30, Zole Galisa, the Vice President of Corporate Affairs at South African Breweries, tell us, tells us about her life, her career and her ambitions as the Vice President of Corporate Affairs at South African Breweries. That's all on The Money Show tonight. The Money Show will give you all the tools you need to navigate the complicated world of economics and commerce. Even if you're not a numbers person. The Money Show. With Motel Faribe. 6 to 8 p.m. Making money makes sense. On 702 and Cape Talk. Well, bringing you closer to the experts, the activists, and the leaders driving positive climate change. This is The Money Show with Bruce Whitfield, and we're live from COP28 in Dubai, now brought to you by Vodacom Group. Bruce Whitfield, of course, joining us from Dubai. COP28, officially the largest ever UN climate summit with 80,000 participants registered. Among the thousands, though, attending, we've got our ear on the ground through Bruce Whitfield. Bruce, welcome, of course, to The Money Show. There's been a lot of promise around serving uh, vegan food at uh, this particular climate change. Have you enjoyed some vegan food, especially uh, trying to make sure that the meat industry gets a clear message that we can't have CO2 emissions? No, exactly. I mean, look, it's all very worthy and very nice. I had some salmon at lunchtime, I must confess to that. But yes, there's lots of vegan food around. The food is 
sold as highly sustainable. Um, and yes, I mean, cows are windy, um, you know, they, especially cows <laughs> that grow up. Um, and there is a particular C word, Aspelagus linearis or something, linearis, Aspelagus linearis. It's Australian seaweed. Um, unfortunately, if you harvested all of it, it would destroy the sea bottom in Australia. But there are synthetic variants of it. And if you put that into, into cattle uh, feed, they are less windy and that's more green apparently. So there is a future for beef in the world. They've just got to find ways of making it a little bit less toxic for the environment. But yes, we're at the epicenter of fossil fuels. Fossil fuels, of course, the backbone of the entire UAE economy. They're not very keen on letting fossil fuel go anytime soon and therefore talking down the science around climate change, which points to the fact that yes, while bovines are very, very windy, um, fossil fuels make a massive contribution to uh, the two climate change and unless we reduce our, our fossil fuel emissions or our, our, uh, our emissions by 44% over the next six years, we're going to lose the fight against 2% change in climate change. We've already lost the fight against 1.5%. Uh, 2% is in target. And even somebody said to me today, we could see a four-degree increase in average temperatures by 2050. It's a huge and contentious issue. But everyone here that I've spoken to certainly seems to be in agreement, and that is that we've got to raise money for the problem. You're not going to create incentives for business to change the way they behave. You're not going to go out and encourage the UAE to wean itself off its dependence on fossil fuels mm. unless you think differently about the problem. One of those people who thinks differently about the problems around the transition uh, from, a carbon, from a carbon economy to a greener economy is Msisi Kosa. Caught up with Msisi earlier. He is ESG executive at ABSA CIP. Bruce, thank you so very much for uh, for having me. Um, look, it, it, it is critically important. Uh, it's, it's important because the climate emergency is a global challenge. So it is important for the world to gather in this gathering to to really take stock, uh, but also to to formulate new ideas, uh, new plans, new commitments, uh, new pledges uh, for really. You know, helping to solve uh, all of this challenge, and, and the climate emergency, unlike in any other uh, sort of issue, is, is borderless. It, it requires truly global cooperation, and it's important for for, for everybody uh, to take this seriously and to come together uh, to try and solve the problem. But the last time there was a decent agreement at COP, that was in 2015 in Paris. The Paris Climate Agreement came out, and we. Uh, the world agreed, 197 countries signed up to a 1.5 degree rise in temperatures could be tolerated by 2050 as opposed to what was going on before industrialization. Everyone agreed to that and that target has bypassed us. We're never going to make one and a half degrees unless we cut carbon emissions by 44% or something very, very quickly. Mm. So that's never going to happen. So now we're targeting 2%, but actually that's probably not going to happen either. I'm beginning to hear rumblings of people saying, we need to be tolerant of 3%. And that's just a disaster zone, isn't it? No, Bruce, the, uh, the science is very clear, as you've, as you've clearly articulated, uh, around, uh, around what is required. But I also think it's important not to become despondent. There are some, some, some good movements that are, that are, and good things that have happened in progress that's happened at this COP. A year ago, uh, this time, we did not have a loss and damage fund. Uh, there were no 
pledges or commitments to it. Uh, if I reflect back on the Climate Finance Day yesterday, which was the theme of the COP yesterday, uh, you know, you had the uh, the World Bank, the African Development Bank, and a multitude of others. You know, commit to aggressively using their balance sheet to 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 try and unlock even more capital. Okay. So there is steady progress. I think it's important for us not to be despondent. Um, is there more that can be done? Uh, look, I think I think you, you'd be hard pressed to find anybody here who say who say who say no to that. This is uh, th- this this is an amazing collection of intellectual capital from around the. world. World. The smartest minds in climate finance, the smartest time, uh, minds in really fighting climate change are all here. I wonder whether politics gets in the way of the fight against climate change because the, the headlines scream that the UAE can't see the science in fossil fuels. And of course they would say that because they build their entire nations off the back of fossil fuels. The UK has taken a step back and Rishi Sunak, the Prime Minister, has taken a big knock uh, politically on that particular point. If we took it out of the hands of the politicians and actually made it the issue that business should contend with, would it work better? Look, Bruce, I can't comment on, on, the, uh, uh, on the politics of climate change, but what I can tell you is is certainly as a private uh, corporate citizen in the form of APSA you know we are deeply committed as you know you know we we are one of the largest financiers of renewable energy on the continent and and if there's anything that's come out of this conference certainly for me it is the importance of changing our power sources and that being such a big lever but there's a clock ticking you see and that's the trouble you see I mean people with with young kids are looking at this clock ticking looking at the prospect of plus three degrees by 2050 looking at melting polar ice caps, looking at mass migration, looking at the dangers that unbridled climate change bring and saying, why do we not treat it more seriously? And, I, and I, I'd say this as criticism to myself um, and, and to most people listening to us. We kind of go, somebody will fix it eventually. And I'm not sure that we move fast enough or treat it seriously enough. Bruce, look, I mean, again, I, I, I can only give you the perspective, my own personal perspective, sure. but also the perspective of the organization which I represent, uh, the great APSA Bank, uh, which, which, which is taking this very seriously. And we're putting incredible amounts of resources and capital and expertise uh, be- behind doing our own part, but also uh, you know, mobilizing capital so- to support our clients in the real economy. And that's the big difference here, because by making sure that your clients are able to transform and he gets sustainable financing on that position helps them to to transform their practices and everything else because everybody's got to start we are feeling the heat i mean we're in the middle of winter it must be 29 degrees we're sitting in the shade and it's hot i mean it is. and uh, i was talking to a friend of mine earlier saying you know 15 years ago you come to dubai you'd wear a light jersey on a, on a winter's evening now you're in shorts and a t-shirt the world is changing and it's changing quickly are we doing enough look i think there's more to be done uh, would be would be my summary. And is it going to be achieved at places like COP? Look, I think places like COP are indispensable. Um, but I but I do think every person, every organisation uh, must have agency, uh, which is the point you you were mm. raising a little bit earlier uh, in in doing its own role and its own part in helping to solve the problem. How then do we make real progress? How do we get another commitment on the scale of Paris 2015 in a world that we've got two big wars happening, where Countries have got a lot less money than they did in 2015. They were just recovering out of the global financial crisis. Then we had COVID, of course, and there's been billions of dollars printed. Climate gets sort of pushed further and further to the back of the agenda in the face of short-term pressures. I think, I think one of the things that needs to happen uh, in order for us to, uh, to make progress is 
uh, is really unlocking greater and greater sources of capital. Uh, I think that's that's super, super critical. And banks like ours have got a role to play. And, and we're doing our, our, our part, but I think there's even more. And Bruce, thousands of delegates, of course, making their way to Dubai. They have to get there some other way. They can't walk there. Uh, how is the <laughs> aviation industry being treated, uh, especially when it comes to such big uh, climate uh, or, or conferences? Because, I mean, there's always a question around, you know, you guys use fuel when you have uh, these combustive, energy, um, uh, you know, planes that you, that you fly around. Is there any conversation around the aviation industry on, on making sure that climate change, at least in terms of those targets, is met. Bear in mind, this isn't a place where there are radical activists and protesters and those sorts of people. Dubai is not big on that, and these conferences would tend to keep people like that out. Everybody who's come here has come on a jet plane, and they went to Sharm el-Sheikh last year on a jet plane, and wherever it was the year before on a jet plane. They fully accept that there is a transition that has to take place. We have created a global economy that is heavily dependent on fossil fuels. There's no getting away from that. You can cut off fossil fuel production tomorrow. You can stop making fuel and diesel and aviation fuel, and you can stop the global economy in its tracks, and it will become a lot greener, and it will become a much more pleasant environment that you won't be able to afford to live in, and you won't be able to exist in, because you won't be able to do anything that you do today. So all of us, I mean, you drove to work today, you will drive home this evening. We do that each and every single day. The moment somebody takes an aeroplane to a big conference, oh my goodness gracious me, it's the end of the world. Um, and they, look, there, there is a, certainly the criticism is not unwarranted, uh, but is the world better off today because 90, 80, tens of thousands of delegates have turned up at COP and are having these critical conversations, the, the conversations with which Mzizi Kwaza just described just a moment ago, as, as being absolutely indispensable because every year there are micro progressions that happen, new innovations that happen, new technologies that come to the fore, new ways of thinking, new levels of agreement. And it's not the big bang stuff. It isn't the stuff that you're going to sort of wake up tomorrow morning and suddenly the air is going to be purer, the sky is going to be bluer, and the birds will be chirping more, light, uh, more brightly. It's not that kind of development, unfortunately. This process of preventing a meltdown in the world is a long-term project. And yes, we'd love to have it happen tomorrow, but it's just not practical. There are brilliant ideas. There's some wonderful ideas. Now, try and picture a phone booth. You're too young to remember what a phone booth is. But a public phone box... (laughs) (laughs) But a public phone box, about two-thirds the size of a public phone box, above it are two rotor blades um, with a very expensive-looking mechanism, uh, a bit like you would have on a drone that you buy from a toy store. And you, it's made of fiberglass, and you've got these, these propellers on top. Get into it. It's not legal to fly these things yet, but apparently they do work. And this is what a company called Fly Now Aviation says is going to be very commonplace very, very soon. Effectively, electric vehicles in the sky, oversized phone boxes. And I spoke to Yvonne Winter. Now, she is the chief operating officer of Fly Now Aviation. And they were demonstrating the capabilities and had a really, really cool VR display of flying this thing over the deserts of Dubai. It was wild. This is Yvonne Winter. 
So, uh, hello, nice to meet you. This is uh, basically an electric helicopter. You can as well say eVTOL, electric vertical takeoff and landing. And uh, we developed a modular eVTOL family consisting of the single seater you see here and as well a twin seater. And we start with the cargo version, which is capable to transport up to 200 kilogram in the size of a Euro pallet. It's an astonishing vehicle. I sat inside it and it's, it feels like a tiny telephone box and the old <laughs> of telephone boxes and you, you close the door on it and I mean is a phone remotely do you have to fly it yourself how does it work no so it's an automatic approach we are flying in a predefined route from waypoint to waypoint uh, over so-called alternates alternative landing spots and it's like an autopilot you can imagine and this is known in the aviation for quite a while um, it's not autonomous a lot of people ask that autonomous would mean that the vehicle itself decides every millisecond where to go and what to do and honestly no air authority in the world wants that that's why we wait for an automatic approach and we file a flight plan throughout uh, through air traffic management to air traffic control the moment we get the flight plan approved it's pre-programmed in the vehicle and air traffic control takes over and observes the flight which makes sure that only the local government meaning air traffic control is in charge of their airspace as a little kid i grew up believing that by now we'd have flying cars this isn't quite flying cars it's an an individualized vehicle that sort of was a bit like a drone. I know it's not a drone. You know what? It is the modern flying carpet. <laughs> <laughs> carpet. That's what it is. Now, what is the use case for this? I mean, is is there any regulation in the world that is allowing the use of these things yet? Um, they are just in the process to set the regulations for the operations of uh, these kind of vehicles. Uh, that's why our, our approach is to start with the cargo version. And uh, with the cargo version, we can fly over non and low populated areas, just cargo. And... Uh, you know, delivering stuff to islands, to remote places, to mountains, delivering emergency goods for disaster relief. There are hundreds of different applications where you don't need to go over populated areas. And that's where we start. And then we collect a couple of hundred thousand flights. And then we go into the certified category, okay. which allows us then to transport people over populated areas. Do you see a future five years, ten years from now where I could pop into this vehicle and be dropped off on the helicopter deck at the Burj Al Arab for dinner? Of course. Definitely, this is feasible. So right now we have specific category sale too, and uh, we are currently testing under EASA rules. We now started the serious development of the cargo version, and in 28 months from now, so less than two and a half years, the first cargo vehicles are available. And um, in approximately four and a half to five years, uh, the single and the twin seater is available. So definitely, in five years, you can enjoy your flight. Bruce Whitfield, sounds like you've had quite a ride so far, of course. <laughs> we'll catch up with you. Only if only I'd had a ride. I sent a photograph of myself inside this vehicle to my 15-year-old son, and he wants to know if he's getting one for Christmas. Uh, quick answer, no. Hefty, uh, hefty two million rand there. starting price. <laughs> All right, thank you uh, to Bruce Whitfield out at COP28 in Dubai. The Money Show. The Markets.
Marginal gains for the markets today. We are now joined, of course, in our market commentary by Chris Stewart, Portfolio Manager at 91. Chris, a better day on the market, but only just very marginal. Yeah, good evening, Matteo. Yeah, we've uh, small gains, I guess. And at this time of year, I think we're just grateful for any gains we can get. So, uh, yeah, not, not not too bad. We've got the US uh, opening marginally up, despite or perhaps because of uh, further uh, soft macroeconomic data coming out of the US. So we had another uh, fairly uh, modest or, if you like, disappointing jobs number coming out of the US. And I think disappointing macro data at the moment. We're back to the world where good news is bad news because that probably uh, means the uh, pundits in the market will start discounting uh, declining interest rates faster than they might otherwise have done. And that then starts to get risk assets going. So you know, that's that's probably what's driving the U.S. market today, what drove our market. Bit of a mixed bag, but as you point out, uh, at, the, at the margin, slightly positive. Then British-American tobacco down 10% on the JSC today. Uh, U.S. trading update uh, saying that a lot, a lot of people are smoking and those that are, are opting for cheaper products. Yeah, uh, or illicit product, I, I think, uh, is, is, is part of the problem in the U.S. as well. But, what you know, what you've seen is, is British-American tobacco coming out with their full-year trading update for the 2023 financial year based on their trading for the first nine months. They've got a December year-end. Uh, and while the 2023 guidance is probably uh, roughly in line with uh, what they've previously guided, although they did say that uh, organic uh, constant currency revenue growth would be at the low end of the 3 to 5% guidance rates. But I think the market's probably discounted a fairly soft 2023. I think what got the market upset today uh, was two factors. One is they were guiding to a, a pretty uh, modest 2024 as well, uh, talking about uh, pressure in the U.S. combustible market, pressure uh, in the U.S. Uh, vape market due to illicit product, uh, and now only guiding for low single-digit organic sales growth um, in 2024, as well as uh, a step up or, or further step up uh, in investment to strengthen their U.S. operations in the heated tobacco space particularly, uh, and as a result of that, talking to adjusted operating profit growth also in the low single digits for 2024, which probably means, uh, you know, low to mid single digit earnings downgrades. Uh, I think that was one factor that disappointed the market. The other factor disappointed the market is that they expect the net debt to EBITDA ratio to finish the year at around 2.7 times. Uh, they've indicated that they are unlikely uh, to reinitiate share buybacks until such time as that metric gets to the sort of middle of the two to three, uh, two to three times uh, range uh, that is their target. Um, and so with net debt to EBITDA probably not getting down to the two and a half times level uh, before at the earliest, the end of next year, I think some of the capital return expectations and the share buyback expectations that the market had been hanging their hat on uh, have probably been pushed out by six to 12 months as well. And that is what exactly moved the market today. Uh, Chris Stewart, thank you very much. Portfolio Manager at 91. You're with Motel Faribe on 702 and Cape Talk. On the next Money Show, Kukisidaki, Director and Wealth Manager at WealthCreed, will be on will be our guest in our personal finance feature. She'll share some tips on how to reach financial freedom and independence. And Pablo Fatidi, CEO at Auric Business Accelerator, on how to design and engineer your own business to function effectively. And of course, we'll help you digest the biggest business and finance news of the day, some coming from COP28.
Motel Paripe on the Money Show. 6 to 8 p.m. Well, while we'll be talking business news just in, the South African Parliament has passed the National Health Insurance Bill. Of course, that uh, bill is uh, to provide universal access to quality health care for all South Africans. Uh, there is has been rather a release statement from the South African Health Professionals Collaboration uh, saying really following the passing of the NHI bill by the NCOP, uh, South African Health Professionals Collaboration, a, mo- a national group of nine medical, dental and allied healthcare practitioners association representing more than 25,000 dedicated private and public health care workers is calling on the president to refer the NHI bill back to parliament for consideration. Uh, Caroline Corbett, we have her on the line. She is representing, uh, is the spokesperson of the South African Health Professionals Collaboration. The news have come out. Parliament has passed this bill. Uh, Why do you want it to be reconsidered? Thank you very much for having me. We find it, we're deeply despondent about this result. We thank the Western Cape for, for voting to, to pause this process. We have been asking for engagement with the healthcare uh, forums that are involved in providing opinion and providing guidance on this bill. And we have yet to engage with, with the presidency, with the minister, with the office of the Department of Health in order to try to put forward solutions and alternatives to what is currently being proposed in this bill. It is not implementable, it's not affordable, and there are multiple problems with this. We have the most skin in the game. We are patients, we are providers, and we are taxpayers in this in this process. And as healthcare workers, we have an enormous vested interest in ensuring that the health sector is sustainable and that we can provide quality care and quality access to all the citizens of South Africa. The National Health Bill, as it stands, is not the solution to that. Government's argument has been that the National Health Bill is to help everyone get quality health care. Of course, there has been no uh, discussion on how this will particularly be funded, but on your own calculation at the, as the South African Health Professionals Collaboration, what do you think is wrong with the bill in its current form? I don't think this interview is long enough to expand on that. But our biggest concern is is that it doesn't address health reform. It certainly doesn't address the means to actually enable health reform at a public sector level. There are constitutional infringements that are extremely concerning and have not been addressed in all of the submissions. And the process of railroading this bill through um, the National Council of Provinces is, um, I think it's an embarrassment and the fact that all, all, of, all of the submissions that were sent in have not even been considered. So what we'd like to see happen is actual engagement with the stakeholders that have the greatest vested interest in making this bill work and being the ones who are going to facilitate its rollout. And, and then looking at this particular rollout of the bill, because it, it's clear that the, the government's quite aggressive in pushing through this particular bill, what would make it, uh, you know, a better bill, one that is uh, deliverable to society? Because, of course, uh, South Africans still need that quality uh, health care. Breaking down a structure in the hopes that you can use funding and funding pools that are not yet accessible to rebuild it or rebuild something that is being uh, touted and, and window dressed as universal health care is certainly not the solution. What is the solution is to sit with the relevant stakeholders, 
sit with big business, look at public-private partnerships and where they can work and where they can't work, look at how to build trust again within the health sector. There's a huge concern around corruption, a huge concern around malappropriation and misappropriation of funds, of the health budget being wasted, and uh, a huge number of issues at both national and provincial levels when it comes to health budget expenditure. So to now nationalize a pool that has um, the lack of governance and oversight that's been spoken about is very concerning. We want to please be engaged with and to be able to focus on what the intention of the bill is supposed to be, which is quality access to care across all sectors, public, private and a sustainable sector, which this is not offering. All right, that is the immediate response of the South African Health Professionals Collaboration. Caroline Corbett, the spokesperson, talking about why they think this particular bill should go back to Parliament for reconsideration. Of course, news just in the NCOP passing the NHI bill today. It was first introduced in August of 2019, passed by the National Assembly in June this year, and now the NCOP, the latest to pass the NHI bill. The Money Show with Moteo Kwaribe on 702. 702. Now looking at transformation in the fund management industry, RMB Markets Client Executive Isabella Mnisi joins us for this conversation. Uh, Isabella, there's often uh, a focus on the JSE, the number of CEOs that are there, the number of black CEOs that are represented on the JSE, whether women are breaking the glass ceiling uh, on the JSE. But when it comes to fund and asset management, there's not much of a focus in terms of transformation. How does the industry stand now in terms of the numbers and what they've been able to achieve in this regard? Um, good morning, Motel and the listeners, and thanks for having me. Yeah, I think there's been um, you know, more than enough talk about the very slow pace of transformation in the asset management space and transformation across across both gender and, and racial lines. And I think actually recently EPPF commissioned a study about why there are just not um, enough women in the, in the asset management industry. So the numbers are, are really not looking great uh, because I think even though there has been, um, you know, a, kind of like an agenda of uh, transformation, there were no hard, you know, um, hard targets uh, for, for the sector to meet. So as, you know, like most things, if it's human nature, if you if there's something there, it's nice to have, but it's not a must. Most people just want to do it. So that's where the sector is right now, or at least before the Alexander Forbes um, transformation policy was um, was published. Yeah. So uh, the numbers are not looking great. What has made it, um, you know, a process that's so slow? Is it because there was no mandate really uh, written down for the industry to follow in terms of targets? Yeah, so I think it's a, it's, it's, it's a number of, of, of things. I think, um, you know, even though, you know, like, I mean, if you live in South Africa, transformation is our daily bread. We, you know, it's, it's become normal in South Africa. So I think there was a number of things that, you know, led to the industry not being as transformed as it should. Um, I think, the, 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 you know, the, the first one, initially in the beginning, we had the usual excuse of lack of skills. You know, but this doesn't cut it anymore because um, if a company is still beating that lack of skills drum, then the question becomes, why have you not built pipeline of talent internally? And the ta- if you then turn around and say the pipeline internally that I built has all left, then maybe the company needs to take a look at itself on why people are leaving. The second thing is that, you know, um, there are people who see transformation as a burden. 
And I think this mainly comes from um, South Africa's history of apartheid, you know, yeah. the, the poster child for segregation. And if you've been taught that somebody who looks a certain way, you know, is stupid, they're not good enough, all they're good for is to be a servant and this, and you suddenly have to now see them differently. They need to sit across the table from you, discuss the same thing with you. It becomes, you know, a difficult mind shift uh, to have. But uh, the other thing, most importantly, is that if the country has got a transformation agenda, but you've got clients who are the people that you depend on for business, who continue to give you business without enforcing that transformation agenda, then why, what's the incentive for doing it? You know, it's human nature. You do what you have to do to get to where you need to go. So if your clients don't say, we need this, then you don't do it, but you continue to get business and carry on as normal. And, and this is where the shift is now happening. And that shift, uh, South Africa's largest pension funds administrator, Alex Forbes, now saying uh, companies should have some sort of transformation target before they can do any business with the assets they have under management. Is it a good move to see a private sector play, a player saying that, look, we're going to enforce the rules and make sure that we are uh, the ones championing uh, the transformation in this particular industry? Yes, I mean, I think, uh, you know, PIC and EPPF, which is the ESCOM Pension and Provident Fund, were pioneers, you know, in supporting uh, black uh, management, um, black asset management firms. And they've been in, in, in that space for a long time. And they were followed by some uh, union-affiliated um, retirement funds. But, you know, uh, entities could always say, oh, I'll go get money from, from Alex Forbes. I don't have to deal with those other people. So for Alex Forbes to now come out, and, and the good thing about the Alex Forbes transformation is that is very clear. It's not saying you need to be BEE level rating one because anybody can do that. But they're very clear that saying, you know, we need to see staff ownership, particularly that of black investment teams. So the people who actually manage people's pensions, we want to see what, you know, what their skin in the game is. Are they sharing in the in the benefits of the company? And they're also saying we want to see ownership of women in this business. So they are go- they're taking it down to that level. They're not leaving anything vague or anything to, to chance. They've been very specific about what they want to do. And, and we have seen that shake the market a bit because to get a BE level rating one, you know, you can just transform and have a BE shareholder at the holding company. But those are still not the people who make the daily uh, uh, in the decisions of what shares we invest in. You know, uh, do we invest in the country? Do we take money offshore? Do we invest in bonds? Do we invest in equities? So the, the Alex Forbes is going down to that level. And also the GEPF, which is the biggest pension fund in the continent, yeah. also launched the transformation policy in October at the annual conference. So that uh, is going to also shake things up uh, quite a bit. It's important to have those players in the industry, but not only as employees, but also as uh, you know, having black-owned asset management companies and and, and owners that will have substantial, uh, you know, assets under management. Do you think this particular process will now broaden the spectrum for them to enter the industry as well and have uh, some uh, sizable uh, funds under management? Yes, look, I mean, I, I think, um, you know, I, I've written a piece about it. I think we've got a, a lot of small black asset management firms with, you know, assets under management of about... 10 billion, 15 billion here. After COVID, I think a business like that is going to struggle. So I think the industry will, there will need to be some consolidation. And, uh, you know, uh, moves like the ones for Alex Forbes and the one for the GEPF could also be accelerating that consolidation because now, 
you know, if you suddenly have to 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 transform, and let's say you are a you know you're a firm, some of the firms are very small. You are a firm that's got 20 employees. You have uh, no transformation at all. You haven't given your black investment team any stuff. If you've got any black investment team, uh, you know. So if there's an investment team of 10 people and one or two of them are black, and now you need to transform and you need to meet certain targets, you now start to end up with a skewed allocation of ownership to the black staff versus the white men, mainly men staff that was there. And, you know, that, that skew just um, doesn't work very well. So we might see consolidation of the entities that are not transformed, maybe, uh, you know, um, joining or um, having... Um, what you call merging with the the, the, with the black bigger players. asset managers yeah. who are maybe uh, who are maybe having you know AUM that they just were not able to grow. All right, that was Isabella Mnisi, RMB Markets Client Executive, talking about the transformation goals in the asset management business in South Africa. Alex Forbes, one of the biggest pli- private players in terms of the pension funds under administration, saying they're trying to push for that administration, asking our fund managers to now transform before they do any business with them. Of course, the GEPF as well, amongst those that hold a lot of uh, assets under management and now are forcing the industry to transform. 702 and K-Talk. Motel is on The Money Show. Well, Impala Platinum today at its uh, Simonia Hostel Stadium was packed to the rafters as Impala the mine, its miners, families and the community honoured the 13 miners who lost their lives in that Shaft 13 incident that happened on the 27th of November. We're going to be joined now by Jonathan Theron, uh, Group Executive Corporate Affairs at Impala Platinum, just to talk about what the future holds for those families that have uh, had those lives lost in that incident and also the agenda ahead of the company's annual general meeting. Ayoan, welcome again to The Money Show. Good evening. Uh, a moving tribute to the miners today. Uh, just uh, explain to us some of the promises made to those families in terms of uh, you know, financial backing from the mine. It's very, very moving. Um, very, very important morning moment for us in our darkest hour. Um, I think the, the commitments today is a reaffirmation of the way we do business, what we already do. So in cases like this where um, workers are lost, um, you know, we stand by families extended over time. Um, We keep on visiting them four times a year. We retain our relationship with them. We make sure that, you know, the breadwinner is secured, that the children are looked after through school, university, find their way into the job market. Um, You know, these are our our comrades, our family. We just can't turn our back on them. We have to stand with them, um, you know, given the circumstances that they find themselves in. And uh, today, some of the promises made uh, around backing the, the, the family itself, but also making sure that the children of the minors are educated and in future also having an opportunity to be employed at Impala. Yeah, I think that's very, very important. Um, you know, children, um, it's very important now that the family member is not there, that we step into that void, that we ensure that, you know, school is attended, um, all those extramural attendants are, are looked after, all the way to tertiary education. As far as the children are able to, to work themselves through, you know, we will take their hand and work with them. And then hopefully, you know, finish university or some tertiary education so that we all can also assist them into the job market.
Can you just update us on the investigation around the incident that happened on the 27th? How far is the mine with that? And whether the safety uh, at the mine will be top of the agenda come the AGM? Yeah, I think safety is always top of the agenda. Um, and, and that's what makes this such a somber mood. Um, you know, these shaft systems are used all over the world and notoriously safe. We've gone and checked every single one of our systems in, in the mine. The investigation has commenced. Um, as you can imagine, um, you know, it will take a couple of months to complete. It's multifaceted. There are various external experts, government, uh, unions, all of them simultaneously involved in this investigation. And we will leave no stone unturned to understand completely the sequence of events and the core cause that has resulted in this tragic event. You have recently acquired RMB Platinum. Uh, of course, they having to uh, delist on the JSE. Uh, just take us through some of the AGM points that you'll be covering as Impala Platinum. Yeah, there's always the, 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 the normal um, resolutions that we have to go through. But I think the, the big focus right now in the mining industry is always safety. It is always um, the, the profitability and the sustainability. And it was one of the key reasons why we pursued RB Platts is to ensure that our neighboring mines can be combined and that we can extend mine life and job opportunities there. Um, you know, those will be some of the key focus areas. Now, it's been a tough year for the Platinum Belt. If you look at uh, production, uh, structural issues that have made it hard to operate in terms of a power supply, but uh, recently as well with Transnet's rail and port difficulties, um, you know, what do you forecast will be the focus for Impala into the new year, given that prices for Platinum Group Metals have been so low? Yeah, the, the operating environment indeed is very, very tough, and you have alluded to some of those those challenges. I think for us, the biggest issue right now is the metal prices. We've seen, you know, north of 40% decline in metal prices. We've seen these mines quickly transition from profitable to loss making. And I think all of the platinum industry is solely focused now on, you know, what can be done to ensure that these mines remain financially viable and stable. The last thing you want to see is job losses, specifically in the African context where the economy is. And, and, and with the level of unemployment that we have in our country. You know, you think about our Rustenburg operation where people focus with today more than 50,000 people being employed there on a full-time basis. Then dependence, it's half a million people that's dependent on that mine being financial, viable and sustainable. Will you be discussing job losses just quickly? I think the whole industry is working through that. It's something that we're all trying to avoid as best as we can. So the focus is on capital expenditure, prioritization, cost containment, optimization of our production levels. And to the extent that uh, these operations become systemically unsustainable, then unfortunately jobs and job security does come into focus. But it's always the last resort. And it's always something that we do with due care and responsibility. All right. uh, Johan Theron, Group Executive Corporate Affairs at Impala Platinum. The Money Show. With Motel Haripe. On 702. Let's walk the talk.
Absa Corporate and Investment Banking, the market leader in renewable energy deals across Africa, is proud to bring you The Money Show. Absa is a registered FSP. Well, news just in, as you've heard from Eyewitness News, South Africa is one step closer to implementing the highly contentious national health insurance system after the National Council of Provinces voted in favor of the NHI bill on Wednesday. Now, eight of the nine provinces voted to approve the bill. The Western Cape voted against it. NC Secretary General Figila Mbalula earlier on saying in a media briefing that it was important for party members to make sure the bill went through. We had some response on the money show earlier on from the South African Health Professionals Collaboration speaking to Caroline Corbett, the spokesperson of the SAHPC. They say they would like to see the bill go back to Parliament for reconsideration because they don't believe in its current model it can be implemented. The Money Show. Business Unusual. Business Unusual is brought to you by Bidvest Bank. Bidvest Bank, built for your business. Let's get into Business Unusual now. We're going to be talking about a peculiar subject today called productivity, paranoia. I'm also going to be learning a, things, a few things, uh, one thing or two around productivity, paranoia. We're going to be speaking to Sipiwa Moyo, organizational behavior specialist. A lot of us are, of course, uh, in the festive season. It's uh, hard to get to work. We're dragging ourselves there looking forward to the festive season and there could be some productivity paranoia that could come in whether you would still have the same productivity going into the year end whether you still pull your weight at work and we're going to be discussing that with Spiwa Moyo now on Business Unusual. Spiwa, welcome to The Money Show. Muteo, thank you so much for having me. It's great to be here. I think for the benefit of us all and more especially myself, just explain what productivity paranoia is. So I think generally speaking, uh, productivity paranoia is where leaders fear that uh, productivity is being lost, particularly due to employees not working. So if they believe someone is not working, especially if uh, I can't see you, maybe you're working remotely or around this time that I leaders lose trust that people are actually working because of the lack of concentration that we normally have at, at year end. But it turns out even uh, employees kind of mirror that distrust to their colleagues. So those of uh, those colleagues who are in the office, uh, uh, according to recent uh, survey, do not trust that those who are working remotely are actually working. So it's one of those um, heightened state where everybody doesn't trust everybody that they are working, particularly because of the time of the year. How could this hurt the business? I mean, if another employee feels another's not pulling their weight and they also going to work begrudgingly, um, you know, with the knowledge of, of, or rather the perception that they think those that are at home and have hybrid deals with the company aren't really uh, delivering as much as they are. It really hurts uh, morale. It helps, uh, it hurts collaboration because those who are in, uh, who are working from home, to have also something that they don't trust those who are in the office. So they are suspecting that those who are working in the office have proximity bias, that the fact that they are working in the office, uh, that means they, are prox- they, are, they have proximity to the leaders, which is good for chances of promotion, which is good for also another thing called recency bias. The fact that I see you every day suggests that I think you are working, but if you have other people who are working from home, 
are not being trusted by those who are working uh, in the office, that they're probably not working. Even the Teams meeting that they are probably on, they probably have that Teams meeting, but they're busy having fun somewhere else. It can really uh, damage relationships. It can damage the trust level. And we already know that without distrust, teams cannot be effective. I can only imagine this is happening more and more, especially after COVID. Uh, we all cut different deals with our companies. I would like to have a hybrid model. We've had the four-day work week being tested in South Africa, uh, a different working world that we've stepped into after uh, the COVID-19 lockdowns. How difficult is it for companies to have a clear balance between all the workers that contribute to the effort? It's very, very difficult. We already know that uh, particularly in 2023 and 2022, many companies started having a mandatory a mandatory in-office policy. So a lot of people are back in the office, but there's that 30% where people are coming voluntarily to the office. And we know that 60% or so are hybrid and 40% work full-time in the workplace. So uh, people have negotiated different deals. But one of the things we know that can help us overcome that is where whether people are hybrid or they work in the office, leaders must be very conscious and intentional about creating days in the office where everybody is in the office and using those days well. One of the weird things that we've seen happening is that sometimes we would have a mandatory in-office work and then everybody would come into the office and end up being on teams the whole day. And that... Um, you know, makes employees wonder why did I have to come in the office yeah, at all? So many companies are structuring it very intentionally where we're saying if all coming to the office on Wednesday, let us make sure that on that particular day, we organize things where we can collaborate because teamwork does matter. Uh, but if we're going to go to the office and everybody is on teams, then we're wasting time. So when we go to the office, we must make sure that we are intentional in rebuilding that strong office community, but especially when we are there, we're willing to have conversations that matter, uh, meetings around collaborations, and the best things that are done in the office, which is training, collective problem solving, and collaboration. Otherwise, we're wasting the time in the office. But Spio, I mean, I won't lie to you. I'm, I'm not going to act better than anyone else. We're all tied around this time of the year. You know, when the year draws to a close, uh, you know, the, the unique challenge that you face of, you know, putting your alarm on snooze a few times. We all love what we do, but I mean, it's just, it's fatigue. It's the physical and the mental energy that you've put in throughout the year to make sure that you, you deliver on your deliverables. And, you know, how do companies make sure that professionals keep focused even during this time of the year? I think that first admission that you had, Mateo, is exactly what leaders have. Everybody must just admit we are all tired and, and not use the last few days of the of the year uh, to hold people or sage to the fact that they're tired. Let's do things that matter. If it can wait until the next year, let it wait. But let's use the time we have to take all the things that really, really matter instead of trying to rush everything uh, because one of the things we also know is that what productivity paranoia actually fuels is the idea now of trying to prove that I'm working, but I am not working at all. We understand that all of us are mentally tired. And when your mental bandwidth is exhausted, one of the things that happen is the so-called presentism. So I go to work, but I'm not there. Even my 
productivity decreases, my creativity decreases, because we already know that things like creativity needs you to take the walk at some point. So what, what we need is leaders who are going to give a lot of autonomy, uh, leaders who are going to give us a little, little bit of space. Let's collectively think about what do we still need to achieve around this time, and then let people do it in, uh, in the best way they know how to focus outcomes, not on people being present, because we are time. And when there's this productivity paranoia then emanates from everybody pretending that no one is tired, but me not trusting Muteo that Muteo is not working, Muteo not trusting yeah. that I'm work- I'm not working, yeah, I'm but it's unproductive. We, I think we can just a, pause a, the interview a for a little bit. I just want to make sure we get you on a better line. You keep cutting there for us. So we're going to just take a short break and then come back to you. The Money Show will give you all the tools you need to navigate the complicated world of economics and commerce, even if you're not a numbers person. The Money Show with Motel Faribe. 6 to 8 p.m. Making money makes sense. On 702 and Cape Talk. If you've just joined us, we're on Business Unusual today discussing year-end productivity paranoia, talking to Spiwa Moyo, organizational behavior specialist, who's telling us we're all pointing fingers at each other, talking about who's pulling weight for the company, but also employers worried about the type of focus that we have on our jobs, especially towards the festive season. Spiwa, I don't know if I've got you on a better line now to just continue on this particular conversation. Yes, Mitchell, I can hear you very well. I hope you can hear me too. I can. I just wanted to pick it up here. I mean, when you look at uh, manufacturing companies, uh, companies that use uh, manual labor mostly around this time of the year will be winding down. Same for mines, same for steel makers and the like. But when it comes to corporate, we like to stretch out uh, the work uh, period uh, closer to the Christmas period. Does not that, doesn't that affect, you know, that productivity? I mean, what is it that the guys in manufacturing are doing to be able to close on the 12th, on the 15th that, you know, the corporate guys can't do closing uh, closer to the Christmas period. So it turns out there's a bit of an, an HR basic basic conditions of employment act uh, somewhere there. So one of the things that happened in the manufacturing industry is that most of the people, particularly what they call uh, the bargaining unit people, do not necessarily take a lot of leave uh, throughout the year. And so everybody kind of takes leave at a particular time uh, during December and we have everybody closing down. But I think, um, you know, there obviously is some disadvantage to that, that, you know, when you're going to work throughout, there is a possibility of you being uh, tired and therefore you losing your mental capacity to work uh, throughout the year. But what I think they got right is this idea of, of shutdown. And I think, uh, you know, many industries, uh, to be honest, there comes a point where we really need that shutdown. Uh, because I think one of the things what we are not admitting, and there's a culture that is encroached the workplace, is the culture of wearing uh, this this uh, thing of being, I'm hectic, I'm tired as a badge of honor. Uh, you know, we enjoy it saying, oh, I'm tired, yeah? yeah, I'm hectic, yeah? as if it's some badge of honor. But what we don't understand is that the more tired I am, the more unproductive I actually am. So we have this toxic culture of enjoying burnout, of enjoying uh, being hectic. But what is happening there is that there's definitely an inverse relationship uh, between productivity and, and, and this culture that we have of being always on. We need to be 
off at some point so that we can rest and so that we can then work better. And I think many employers are pushing towards at least a shutdown around 22 December. But I think we just have to be a little bit kind to each other about and honest to each other about what can we do uh, during the last few days. Otherwise, we just fuel this paranoia of uh, distrust between employees. And as we wrap up, Spiwa, into the new year, what other methods can companies use to make sure that they don't have that productivity paranoia, especially towards the end of the year? I think one of the things that if I'm a leader, I'm using the last few days um, uh, on is to make sure that, yes, we deliver what we need to deliver, but make sure that we prioritize work relationships for better collaboration. We already know that when people feel that they have friends at work, it contributes to their well-being, it contributes to engagement, it contributes to um, job satisfaction. So I'll be using some of those few days to make sure that we collaborate, we work together, we finish strong together, which entrenches that deeper sense of belonging because we understand that if we can finish strong together with that strong sense of community when we go back to work tomorrow at least we have boosted our mental well-being and we can really do things that matter all right that was more your organizational behavior specialist joining us for business unusual tonight talking about year-end productivity paranoia the money show consumer ninja it is a little after seven here on The Money Show. And around this time on Wednesday, we do tackle your consumer issues with our consumer ninja, Wendy Nola, joining us tonight to give us the latest on some of the rights that we can pick up on, giving you gems on how to tackle some of these difficult issues. Today, we talk credit life insurance. And of course, um, you know, it's one of those things that you don't want to do. You do begrudgingly because ugh, I've got a big loan. I've got a loan out um, for a, a large home loan or any sort of loan that you need to pay for and you pay this credit life insurance to make sure that it's a safety net should anything go wrong with your finances. Uh, Wendy, welcome again to The Money Show. Why is it important to have this credit life insurance? Thanks, Mateo. Well, I think for a lot of people, you know, you take out this very long, long term loan in the case of a mortgage. And, you know, we all know things happen, life changes. I just have to say the word COVID and you you get me. Um, and also people who uh, take out a bond with a spouse, a partner, a parent, a sibling or whatever, and you rely on them paying their half of the bond in order to keep the roof over your head, right? And so if something happens to them or you, you want to know that the other one is not going to lose the house. That's essentially why people do it. Um, and in our case study, Angeline did exactly that. She took out a home loan um, with FNB 10 years ago with her mom as joint bondholder. And they've been paying, well, on the current balance of 340,000 odd, they were paying 518 rand a month as a credit life insurance premium. And the two amounts, the bond installment, which, as you know, was wildly increasing I mean, in the this last interest rate months. cycle, yeah. yeah. As, as it, all of us know that have home <laughs> bonds, so that increased. But she, the, um, the credit life premium was added to that amount and debited in one debit order, which is usually the case um, in these situations. So, um, unfortunately, Angeline's mother died in October. So last month when she lodged the claim on that credit life policy, she was initially told, oh no, your policy lapsed because the last premium we received from you was in February. 
that was news to her and um, as it turns out it wasn't true she was able to say this is the what I've been debited which includes my credit life premium so that's not the case and then she was told actually no it fell away in March of this year when your mother turned 65 in keeping with the terms and conditions of the policy and it is um, standard mm. that there is the age cutoff isn't always the same it can be 65 it's often 65 but I googled this in some cases it's um, 65 or even 70 so um, she didn't have a copy of her policy uh, document anymore. This was 10 years ago that she took it out. So she asked FNB Insure, which is the insurance arm of, of FNB, to provide her with a copy of it. And she says they told her that they couldn't find it. So uh, why was she then not told in March when her mom turned 65? Yeah, especially about the that, age limit. That Yeah, that's just to let you know this is, has fallen away. And more importantly... The premium amount at 500 odd wasn't deducted from um, her debit order every month. So she was still paying the premium. And it turned out in this investigation, and I think the most logical explanation was that they, um, the bank wasn't paying it over to insure. Um, but she was paying it every month and she wasn't told, hold on, your mom's reached 65. Terms and conditions say this uh, policy is now lapsed. So interesting one because, you know, this is a lot of money, 340,000 rand um, that she was now, um, you know. I mean, where does it go? Alone. Does it hang in the balance? Alone. Yeah. yeah. So uh, she took to Twitter and said, this is not fair. I thought this, I had no reason to believe this policy wasn't um, still in place. I'm still paying the premiums. And uh, the the bank's t- uh, Twitter response team, X response team said, um you know, they engaged with her a bit, but the outcome remains the same. No payout. So she asked for my help, and I took up her case with um, F&B Insure. Um, their CEO, Lee Bromfield, responded to my questions. He said, a standard practice, the policy of a product would fall away when one of the joint bondholders reaches the predetermined age limit of 65, which is based on the risk assessment inherent to the relevant insurance laws. I guess, obviously, by the time you get to 65, they reckon you're at a higher risk of... Of, of dying and them having to pay out. So, yeah. The bank can confirm that it has met all its contractual obligations and listen to this wording, Matteo. The outcome of the claim was communicated and resolved with the customer on Friday the 24th of November. This was after I took up the case, right? We have made our best efforts to assist the applicant and apologize for the delay, delayed policy cancellation notification due to the predetermined age limit. So I think all in all it would be more accurate, uh, that's the end of the statement by the way, more accurate to state that the bank has now made its best effort to assist Angeline. Um, They said for confidentiality purposes they couldn't divulge any more details. So I had to go to Angeline and say, what's happened? And she said, oh, I got a call and they're paying out. Well, thank you very much. Thanks to the consumer ninja. So So I went back and I said, what does... um, communicated and resolved. I mean, resolved doesn't mean they paid out as far as, it's a bit of a clue that they did, but it didn't specifically say it. So I, I went back and I said, well, what does that mean? And um, they said, well, um, we, we, she, the, it will be paid out. Um, and I said, why wasn't, uh, why weren't they told uh, in March when the mom reached 65 that the policy would fall away? Um, 
unfortunately, the cut of communication was erroneously not triggered for the customer to inform that the cover had fallen away. We acknowledge this error on our part and apologize to the customer for this. So as I say, last week, very happy Angeline let me know that she'd got the call and it's 339,000 rand, which uh, the balance of her bond is now settled. She said this time they didn't mention the age cutoff. They just said my premiums, which had not been received from home loans, were now received, hence the claim approval. So interesting one, and I think also well, number one, check the age, uh, uh, the age. Yeah, some great lessons these, in there on these things because they're not all the same, and you might want to shop around. You don't have to go with your bank's one; it might come at a higher price if you're going to have cover for longer. But you might decide that that's worth it. Um, and also, just you know, if she hadn't come to me for help, if she hadn't pushed, if she hadn't um, believed that it was an unfair repudiation. Three hundred and thirty-nine thousand rand, Mateo. That is a fortune. It's it's a lot of money, especially in this economy. Trying to pay off, um, you know, a home loan, but also just checking when you do take out some of these loans, how old you are and their age limit. It's very, very important. And I have to say, read the terms and conditions. I have no reason to believe that the cutoff wasn't in the terms and conditions. I'm sure it is in the policy document. But as I say, Angeline didn't have a copy, and she's far as I'm aware, she still hasn't got um, a copy that she requested once this dispute arose. But I mean, it's moot now because she's got to pay out. But always um, read those very important terms and then you can make an informed decision. Maybe, you know, decide to get cover that will, as I say, cover you for longer from, from elsewhere. Well, that was uh, Wendy Lola helping again one ninja move at a time. All's well that ends well in this particular case around the credit life insurance. Do make the money show shapeshifters absa cib the market leader in renewable energy deals across africa is proud to bring you the money show absa is a registered fsp around this time on wednesday we do have our feature the shapeshifter where we host different business people uh, from around the country that have shown the ability to adapt to their conditions tonight we're joined by zolega lisa the vice president of corporate affairs at south african breweries Uh, zolega is sap's corporate affairs vice president for south africa where she leads teams centered around two of her own passions that being job creation and empowering entrepreneurs in South Africa. Through this position she's enacting real transformative change throughout the nation. Before joining SAB, Lisa uh, was a senior manager at Accenture for nine years. She has a BSc in environmental science and economics from the University of Cape Town and honours from the University of Witwatersrand and has attended a range of executive development courses at Wits Business School and the London School of Business. She joins us tonight on The Money Show. Zolega, welcome rather to The Money Show. Good evening, Matea. I'm honored and humbled to be your guest this evening. Now, as a journalist, I, I, I stay away, I shy away from telling people what I do for a living, especially in social settings. Do people always ask you what your favorite beer is? <laughs> in fact, Matea, they go beyond that. They ask me for beer. So <laughs> I, I, I get a lot of WhatsApps that I'm like, Listen, guys, I'm in the business of selling beer responsibly, so <laughs> Do it the right support way. us. Then, yes. <laughs> growing up then uh, in the Eastern Cape, what were your dreams uh, before you got to the level that you are at in the corporate space? What my what were my dreams? Maybe I should take a step back and say um, perhaps what shaped me 
to to get me to realize certain dreams. I would say, Mateo, that um, I come from a home where just family and love is everything. Um, I grew up uh, with a, a very strict grandmother. So when I was in early ages in primary school, my, my grandmother was a strict disciplinarian. She was a matron at Nkata General. So trust me, when she came home after work, we were sure that the house was clean, homework was done, uh, food was ready, and we were like literally ready to pray. Um, so that strict discipline, I think, has helped me become the woman I am today in the sense that I'm incredibly structured. I'm very decisive. I like structure, I like order, and I like to see things happen. And I think that upbringing groomed me to to know how to navigate corporate uh, places and spaces. Um, my dad was someone also who, who, who really shaped Zolega in the sense that he was my wise counsel. Um, my dad, the late Judge Monama, shared a lot of wise pieces of information with myself, one being financial management. My dad always said to me, Zolega, if you can't afford something, rather not get it. So as I grew older, financial discipline, be it in my personal capacity or professional space is something that became a really, really important thing in how how I show up. And I'll then say perhaps lastly my mom. My mom is so warm, so loving, so friendly and just someone you want to be around. And a big part, I would say, of uh, how I, I was raised and how I've become is being approachable as a leader because I have a mom who was always approachable. I could go to my mom for anything. And that's that's who I am to my kids, to my friends, to my family, to my team, uh, to my colleagues and customers. I was about to uh, to say you're very rigid then if that's what shaped you because think about it. Do you, you have a grandmother that's a matron, uh, a father that's a judge, uh, discipline, <laughs> discipline, discipline, and then... Uh, comes your mother who's uh, the more approachable the softer side of you and yeah. the softer skills of your upbringing and you've used that uh, to, to to kind of maneuver throughout uh, the, the world but when do you move from your uh, your background of the eastern cape uh, through to johannesburg um you know to further your your, your studies so studied in my early primary school days in the eastern cape in st joseph's then moved back to Johannesburg, where then I started schooling. I've always been in girls' school. We had the pleasure of being in Macaulay House, um, when, then went on to Potton High's High School for Girls, where I was in both schools, um, took on leadership roles, being head girl uh, in both platforms. So this notion of leadership, I think, started quite early on. Um, I was just... I think it's something that happened naturally, um, bearing in mind, as you rightfully say, the upbringing that I had. And then I went on to Cape Town, um, the beautiful Cape, to then explore a Bachelor of Science. I'm a very curious and inquisitive person. I then went on to do my Bachelor of Science and really explore the world. And at that time, I, I decided to to explore this thing called environmental science, what's going on in the world, look at developmental economics. We we're talking about sustainable development goals. And I really went in to open up my mind, my heart, and just yeah. learn and take it all in. 
And did you have uh, to go through a culture shock, especially moving to Johannesburg and then Cape Town uh, from the Eastern Cape? You you, you come from a, a vast land there and, uh, you know, things are done differently. You come to a hustle and bustle of Johannesburg and then move on to Cape Town. Did you have to, through that period, uh, move through any culture shocks? Mateo, I wouldn't say, and I'll tell you why. Um, my My family revered excellence in education and exposure. So yeah. one of the things my grandmother did when we were quite young, she took us abroad. My first trip was to go see Victoria Falls. And because of that, from a young age, I started to travel. And one of the things that I've done ever since was to see the world. So I've been, I've worked in in Singapore, I've worked in the Philippines, I've spent time in all corners of this beautiful world. And I think it's allowed me to never be shocked. And in making the transitions, even at an early age, it just, I acclimatized because I was exposed to paces, to people, to complexities from an early age. Are you the type of traveler then that takes a piece of the place with you wherever you go? Um, Are are there any learnings that you picked up as you traveled uh, as a little girl then through into your career as well? Traveling is my gift to myself. I feel wherever I go, I I learn something new about myself and the world. Traveling is the best thing that can happen to one. And I really encourage people, given the opportunity to go somewhere, get on the plane, bus, train, and see the world. And I feel as a result, um, a big part, I think, of my my career success and just my, my personal success is my ability to see things and the curiosity and traveling allows me to go to a place and say, let me, let me try something new. Let me meet someone new. Let me learn something. And curiosity in, in, in the career space is something I think that can differentiate one. And that also helps one develop depth because you continue to learn and to explore, to find yourself, to find others and to learn just a host of things. All right. Uh, if you're joining us now, we are having our shapeshifter conversation with Zoleg Alisa, the Vice President of Corporate Affairs at South African Breweries. Do join us after this for more. And as we get into the nuts and bolts of what she does today for SAB. The Money Show. Shapeshifters. And our shapeshifter tonight is Zolega Lisa, the Vice President of Corporate Affairs at South African Breweries. We pick up the conversation with Zolega around the issue of attributing some of your success to luck. Do you think that some breaks made who you are today or do you think it was just a function of you working hard towards your goals? Mate, I'm a big believer in hard work. You know, I am team 5 am. I wake up early. <laughs> As you know, I've said I'm structured. Look, luck perhaps has its place. Don't get me wrong. Sometimes the universe conspires to help make your dreams come true. But I, I feel like you must be ready when the opportunity comes, which requires preparedness, planning, structure, of course. Uh, so I, I put in the effort, the hours, the time, the learning. Um, and I, I, I worked hard. <laughs> Don't get me wrong. <laughs> <laughs> Was there ever pressure, um, especially with your family background, a lot of education there, a lot of uh, successful careers already that you saw growing up from your father uh, and also with your grandmother as well. Was there any pressure to follow suit the same path that they had or did you have your own plans to, to carve out your own career? 
Um, I wouldn't say there was pressure to to necessarily go into a particular field. I do think there was uh, there was good pressure to excel and succeed. Um, the world needs people who are going to go out there and get things done, uh, shapeshifters, I guess. And we live in a world and a time that we need people who are going to make meaningful change. So I. My family encouraged me to take up opportunities and go all in and supported me. Um, and when it came to careers, I think my family was quite open minded at all times as, as long as I was going to give it my best. Um, they were all in. I'll give you an example. I think when I graduated from UCT, I, I remember calling my parents and I was like, you know, guys, I'm actually wanting to go travel to the US. I won't make my graduation. My mom kept quiet. <laughs> But I would humbly ask that you help me get flights, pay for my accommodation, and I will send you lots of pictures. But I just want to see the world and go to the U.S. And that would be my first trip uh, to the United States at that point. And they were like, look, you want to go see the world? You've graduated. You got the great results. Let's support you. So that's the 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 upbringing I had and the support that I had. And people just encouraged me to to follow my dreams. Yeah. So there was never any pressure to be anything other than what I wanted to be in the best version of it. And then uh, when we look at your own career, I mean, as a senior man manager at Essensure, you spent close to 10 years there. Um, you know, how important is it for you to, you know, do the work, grind, put in the years, get skin in the game in terms of building a career instead of what we're seeing these days of people changing careers every two or three years? I'm glad you touched on it. It's it's a topic I love to talk on all the time. So I I've spent almost 10 years in my previous career with Accenture. It's a global management consulting firm. And you know what that that grit in 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 seeing something through um, and working through it, it's passion and perseverance for the long term. I believe it allows depth in in in, a, in one's career it allows you to really complete a mission so when i i, I joined accenture it was fresh out of varsity i knew nothing of the working world in this fashion and i got into this massive consulting firm where i would then start to advise some of the top listed jc companies global firms etc i really allowed myself time to move through the ranks and with each uh level and step change i just got better and better and better and the organization moved with me and they kept investing in me investing in, in me to a point where i was ready to to move on i i i firmly believe in allowing one time to really immerse themselves be it in expertise in field to get it wrong then right then wrong again then right again and keep getting better and better and better I do know that with this sort of younger generation, there's this, this motivation to keep, keep going from opportunity to opportunity. Sometimes it may make sense for whatever reason, but if you have an opportunity to go deep and narrow, really explore depth in one's career so that as you make career moves, you're moving with, with strong expertise where you've delivered missions and results and you, you've got a really strong toolkit. Um, in your bag. 
As we look at it in hindsight now, uh, what was the difference between Zolega Lisa that entered uh, Accenture uh, all those years ago and the one that left after almost a 10-year stint? Uh, firstly, Zoleka was single, young and free. And then I left as a mom. So I was a very different person. Uh, I think uh, leaving the firm, I had dealt with many, many sort of complexities that businesses face from cost cutting to large scale system implementations to strategic uh, strategy sessions with exco teams to procurement transformations. I mean, I had I had an opportunity to to really do quite a bit. And I think when I left Accenture, I I my views on the working world had changed. Now as a mom, um, I had had my twins at that point in time. So it was really important that I was I was really becoming quite seasoned in what I needed from myself as well because I now had to 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 integrate work and life. I I, I wanted complexity because I, I was getting more and more complex work. Um, so by the time I got to SAB, I, I, I really, really knew who why I was. I knew how I operated. I, I had views. I was able to articulate um, um, just bold thoughts. Um, and I was working to 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 ensure that uh, my family also reaps the benefits from all the hard work that I put in. Do you think as a, a working woman in the corporate space, a leader in the space, as somebody who's headed campaigns and headed, um, you know, great positions in, in some of these entities that you had to uh, work just a little harder than your male counterparts? Because sometimes the toxic part about the corporate space is that as a working mom, um, you know, you'll be left out of projects because uh, somebody thinks you won't have the time to complete them. Have you had to deal with those challenges and, and move into the space and, and actually show that you, you, you can manage your time just as well as anyone else? I I learned the corporate environment really early on. And one of the things I think I always say to my mentees or anyone who asks me around, so like, a, look at yourself today, you're a vice president. Did you have to sure, give up, sacrifice, work harder? I'm like, yes, I did. But at the same time, I had to learn the system to make sure that the system does not throw me out to disadvantage me. So I have a fantastic support structure behind me. I have um, my mom who's still around. I have the most amazing helper. I've got an ecosystem of friends so that when I have to do work, I do it I do it better than my male counterparts, I would say. I, I, I go all in. But that it also allows me, when I come home, I can also change gears because I know when I'm in the office, I run and I mean, my team sometimes says, Oleka, we cannot always be doing the best of everything. And I just demand excellence. So when I go into the office, I'm productive, I'm focused. My team needs to make sure we, we are making the pots so that I'm also able to then change gears and come home and not feel like I have to give anything up. I, I can, I can run with the pack of wolves at the same place. And it's just how I geared my mind uh, to be. And Mateo, one of the things I said is that now that I've got a seat at the table, I am going to make use of it 
to the fullest. And you're definitely and doing that. I said um, to myself. Zolega, through the yeah. future is female. You, you and some of your colleagues have come together, especially uh, during your time at SAB, to make sure that uh, there are more female leaders like yourself coming through the pipeline. Essentially, you haven't closed the door. In fact, you've left it open for the rest to come through. Uh, definitely. I think paying it forward is probably the best part. Um, and funny you say that, I'm reflecting on a LinkedIn post I just shared recently. Someone reached out to me, one of the trainees I hired must be six years ago, and they said, Zuleka, you know, every time we change roles or get a promotion, we have to start with yourself because you, you were the first to op- offer us opportunities. And I remember in my post, I said to people, I said, if you have an opportunity to employ a young person in this country, given the unemployment rate we see, just do it. If you have an opportunity to, to uplift, advise, coach, you lose nothing. Um, paying it forward, I think more so now, Mateo, with young people who are really looking for opportunities um, makes it even more meaningful. And it's one of the things I love to do. I, I really do. It's probably the best part of being a senior leader. It's is rewarding, opening isn't doors it? And just seeing people grow. It's it's rewarding and it 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 pays back because those very same people then paid forward. So it's 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 a gift that keeps giving. And as you continue to help others, they learn from that and continue to pay it forward. And then one day they come back to you and then they tell you the most amazing transformation stories from a career and life perspective, and it makes it all worth it. Now, you work for South African Breweries, a beer behemoth that's now with AB InBev as well. And a beer, you know, socially is considered a male drink. You know, how do you make sure that within SAB structures, we do have, you know, more female brewers, more female leaders in the space like yourself in a company that would otherwise a few years ago just have a, a board and a corporate makeup of just men? Yeah, so uh, I am a woman in beer, uh, and beer is is quite natural, it's local, and it's inclusive. And when I say it's inclusive, one of the things that we are being very deliberate about as a category and within the company is that uh, beer is for all those of legal drinking age, men and women, and it starts within. We have a number of programs we are running within our business to ensure that we are attracting female talent and specifically in our supply and commercial organizations. So the people who make, sell and distribute the beer, we've put in a lot of effort to ensure that there's transformation there, as well as the people who market and uh, come up with these amazing brands and sell the beer. So we've put effort internally. And then we've also had to to be quite open-minded around the evolution of uh, the category to what we now call beyond beer. Give women what they want. So we've said that part of being inclusive is also listening to the consumer and saying, what are the beverages that uh, the female consumer is looking for? So we've got... Uh, a really great portfolio that includes the likes of Brutal Fruit, uh, Black Crown, that's really saying that we want to also have an offering for women. And I think thirdly, we've invested a lot in inclusivity programs economically. I mean, SAB has been funding entrepreneurs 
since day one. It started itself as an as an as an entrepreneurship uh, exercise, but now we invest a lot in women um, entrepreneurship programs through our SAB Finance uh, Foundation to ensure that we also bring women into the economy that they included that they can make buying decisions and they can they really can influence the the the, the economic trajectory of the country. So there are a number of things we've done. Um, as a company to be more inclusive as a category. All right, that is one of the women in Pierre Zolegalisa, the Vice President of Corporate Affairs at South African Breweries. She is tonight's shapeshifter. That's all we had on The Money Show.